Father, we're here to worship you this morning. We're here to give you glory. We're here to give you praise because that's how we respond to everything going around us, Lord. Lord, we live in an anxious city. We live in an anxious time. We live in an anxious world. But Lord, what we're certain of is you. And what we're certain of is that, <clears throat> Jesus, you're reigning on the throne. And Lord, uh, you know, <clears throat> and you are in control. And Lord, we put our hope in that. And Lord, we you take our encouragement from uh, Paul, who tells us to not be anxious about anything, but just come before you with prayer and petitions, with thanksgiving, thanking you that you are on the throne. And God, we just uh, pray. We <clears throat> pray for our city. We pray for uh, those who are ill, especially uh, those who are ill um, in that care home in North Van, Lord. Um, Lord, we just pray that you would be in the midst of our city, that you'd be in the midst of our world. Lord, I pray that if we are feeling anxious, maybe we're not even feeling anxious about this, but we're feeling anxious about other things in our lives, Lord. Help us to just hold on to you, Lord. Hold on to uh, just our hope, our hope that you are on the throne, that you are gonna bring uh, your kingdom in its fullness, that you're gonna make all things new, and Lord, that we have hope. Lord, I just pray that we'd embrace that this morning. Lord, I pray that... Uh, as we look in your word and we just see a glimpse of who Jesus is uh, in the gospel of Luke, we just pray um, you would remind us of that. You would give us a vision to hold on to, that Jesus is worth listening to. He is worth our worship. And Lord, that's what we do. We come before you with prayer. We come before you with praise. And Lord, we just ask that you would encourage us, that you would help us to hold on to our hope. And Lord, we just uh, pray that you would give us eyes to see what you're doing in this world and ears to hear. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you so much uh, for being here this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Steve. I'm excited to be up here uh, sharing um, from God's Word again. And I'm not sure about you, I have really enjoyed this, uh, <clears throat> I've really enjoyed our sermon series in Luke although I'm a little bit biased. Uh, if you're allowed to have a favorite part of the Bible, Luke is my favorite part of the Bible. So uh, I'm totally biased. In fact, I should warn you ahead of time. Uh, it's really easy for me to dive into the details of Luke. Uh, I love what Luke does in his gospel. And uh, <clears throat> you'll see that uh, as we kind of go through this morning. I also just want to let you know, just right up front, there's absolutely zero judgment if you yawn this morning. Uh, zero judgment, and I mean that. Uh, I, I, I think we can all agree that spring forward is literally the worst weekend of the year, and uh, we're all in this together, so please don't worry. Uh, I know we're all tired, so there's absolutely zero judgment. Uh, I've loved the series on Luke, but I also hope that certain times have made you a little bit uncomfortable, because that's what Luke is designed to do. Jesus actually is when he calls us to follow him, when he calls us to discipleship, there are things that he calls us to do that are uncomfortable because they're things we just honestly don't want to do. In fact, I want to pick up where uh, Jesse left off last week. Uh, I have the passage Jesse preached on where Jesse encouraged us from uh, Jesus' uh, teaching to be rich toward God. And uh, if you didn't hear this message, I'd highly encourage you, you can listen to it on the TAP app or a Tapestry website. It was, Jesse did a great job uh, highlighting how Jesus wants us to invest our resources to be rich towards God. Uh, 
that still makes me uncomfortable. It might have made you a little uncomfortable. When we feel uncomfortable, we're kind of tempted to do two things, uh, well, a couple things. One is sometimes we're tempted to domesticate it a little bit. You know, God's really talking about the guy who's going to build the bigger barn, not the guy who's, you know, struggling to make ends meet. Um, and so we kind of rationalize, well, Jesus really isn't saying that I need to invest my resources this way. Or sometimes we spiritualize it, and by spiritualize it, we kind of just take it metaphorically. You know, Jesus is just more concerned with my attitude. Uh, when you talk about being rich towards God, that's something spiritual, not something that reflects itself in uh, my finances. Now, if you were with us in our small group and you read the whole chapter uh, in our small group guide this week, and no judgment if you didn't, our small group actually didn't, no judgment on you guys. Uh, we had birthdays to celebrate. We had three birthdays in the first like 12 days of March. So we took a week off. We'll come back to it. That's okay, normal in a life of a small group. But if you read the end of the chapter, which I have on here, uh, next slide, Jesus kind of takes away this option to spiritualize it. Uh, he literally says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes and no moth destroys. Jesus is literally saying, you can invest in treasures in heaven by giving your money to the poor right now. And I, I feel uncomfortable when I read something like that. You probably do too. But that's not the point. That's not the point of this morning. What I do want to kind of highlight, though, is that we're in this section of Luke where Jesus kind of sets a high bar for discipleship. Disciples of Jesus, uh, to follow Jesus has a cost. And there are things we read that might not strike us as very costly. And there are things we read like this that strike us as, ooh, I don't know about that. And I don't know about you, maybe you're uh, too much of a polite Canadian to think this thought, but sometimes we might think, is this really worth doing? Like, uh, is, is, you know, is Jesus worth like listening to at this point? Is Jesus right? Uh, I don't know if you've ever had that thought. Some people do. Um, and that's kind of what I want to jump on this morning because uh, there's a scene in Luke that kind of addresses this. This might be news to you, but during Jesus's lifetime, he had a little bit of a credibility challenge. You know, people had certain expectations of what a Messiah was going to do, and Jesus didn't do those things. And so people genuinely wondered, is Jesus worth following? In fact, the Gospels are filled of examples of people saying, I want to follow you. And then Jesus lays out, here's how you follow me. And a lot of people just turn away thinking, oh, I don't want to do that. Now, I want to focus this morning on one story in particular in Luke, where Luke really gives us a glimpse of who Jesus is, because it demonstrates that Jesus is worth listening to. That story is a few chapters back in chapter 9. It's the transfiguration of Jesus, which is a fancy word. But before we get to the text, I think where this occurs in Luke's story is really important. And like I said, I want to warn you, uh, it's easy for me to get too lost in the details, but I think this is important. So I want to start, I have a map. Uh, I should warn the slides people. I changed these briefly. Thank you. Oh, and this map failed me too. It's funny, you have Bible software and you'd think they'd have basic things like a map you can use when you preach. Uh, and yeah, it's just funny. Um, if you were here a few weeks ago, my favorite pastor, not just in tapestry, but in the world, Pastor Julin, mentioned how... Uh, <laughs> mentioned rightly that Luke has three really big sections in his gospel. 
Luke's telling the story of Jesus. He has three really big sections and they're divided where Jesus is. So if you've never seen a map of, of Israel at this time, and yes, I have a new toy. I've been looking for an excuse to use it. Up, up here is Galilee. Galilee is up in the north. This is where Jesus is from. Down here is Judea. In between is Samaria. And Jerusalem is right here. So in the first big section of Luke, Jesus is just all up here in Galilee proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's exercising demons. He's preaching. He's teaching. He's teaching a new way to live. And he's healing people. And then at the end of chapter 9, he sets his eyes towards Jerusalem and has this long journey to Jerusalem for like 10 chapters of Luke. And this is normally a fairly quick journey to make, but the point Luke uh, has is that Jesus is taking his time because he's teaching us on the way to Jerusalem how to be disciples. And this is where uh, last week's passage occurred. One of the ways Jesus wants us to be disciples is the decisions we make with our finances. And then the last section, the big section of Luke, is Jesus' last week in Jerusalem. Uh, all Gospels kind of had this extended long week in Jerusalem because that's where Jesus brings his life work to a climax. And so uh, where the transfiguration occurs is actually really significant because it's at the end of this first section. Jesus is in Galilee. A lot of people are getting excited. He's announcing the kingdom of God. People are thinking, oh my gosh, this might be the guy to actually deliver Israel. And then all of a sudden, people realize, oh, but wait, he's not doing the things we hoped he would do. In fact, this is kind of a theme as uh, it, uh, the next slide highlights this. I won't go through each one. But as we approach the end of the section, people start asking, wait, who is this Jesus? Because he's not doing the things we thought he would do. In fact, what's really significant is John the Baptist, who was supposed to announce Jesus to the world, he doesn't know that Jesus is the right guy. He sends disciples, he sends his messengers to Jesus saying, hey, can you tell John, are you the guy we're waiting for or are we waiting for somebody else? Jesus, you know, if, if the guy who's supposed to announce you to the world doesn't know that you're the right guy, you have a little bit of a credibility challenge, right? And that's kind of the challenge of Jesus's career is that he's not meeting people's expectations. Of course, the problem is not with Jesus, they're with our expectations. Next slide kind of... Uh, highlights how this culminates. This culminates on a passage Jesse preached on, also did an excellent job on, the famous, who do you say that I am thing. This is kind of the crescendo of the section because we really care who Jesus is at this point. Peter rightly identifies him as God's Messiah, but what's really significant is right after that, what Jesus says. Oh, thank you. Jesus says, I'm gonna be the Messiah, but I'm gonna go to Jerusalem and die. And if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross too. Forever who wants to lose his life or save his life will lose it. Whoever loses their life on, uh, for my sake will save it. And I didn't highlight it, but what's also really significant is he adds, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So Jesus is telling them, I know you have these expectations. I am going to come in glory, but you need to join me in denying yourselves, taking up your cross, and following me. Now, I've, I used this analogy if you were here last summer. Uh, I preached on a, another passage similar to this, and uh, it would be like if you really were a fan of a certain politician, and this politician was going to say, I have a plan to become prime minister, 
and my plan is to lose the election and to be thrown in jail for corruption charges and join me as I pursue this career. You might be thinking, well, that's not the way it's supposed to work. You're supposed to win an election and then I'm supposed to get a job in your office after and I'm supposed to be one of your advisors, help you govern Canada. Same type of thing. That's not what messiahs were supposed to do. Messiahs were supposed to at least rule Israel, if not rule the entire world. And Jesus' disciples are probably thinking to themselves that by being in Jesus' inner circle, they're going to be part of his administration. We're going to be part of this ruling uh, party when Jesus comes into his glory. So Luke does not tell us that his disciples started doubting, but just given everything else that we see of the disciples, we can't imagine the disciples weren't questioning to themselves, is this what we signed up for? Is this the kind of Messiah we expect? No. Is this the kind of guy who's worth following? And in, in that moment that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us this transfiguration of Jesus happens. And that's significant because it shows us that this moment is supposed to assuage those fears. This is a moment where we get to see who Jesus really is in a fuller sense. We get to see what Jesus is up to doing, and we get to see that Jesus really is worth listening to. And we're going to see that. So that long introduction, let's actually get into the text. So verse 28, I'll read it from this. Well, brought my Bible, but it is bigger up there. So about eight days after Jesus said this, which Luke is saying to link the two on purpose, after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James and went up to a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking to Jesus. They spoke about his departure, with a footnote, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem, which is certainly an odd way of saying that. We'll come back to that. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Interesting to note, they saw the a glimpse of the glory that Jesus said he was going to come in. And as the men were leaving, Jesus and Peter, or I'm sorry, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not, and Luke lets us know, he had no idea what he was saying. Typical foot-in-the-mouth moment that uh, many of us have experienced. And then while Peter was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was all alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at the time what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Now, uh, this might strike you as an odd scene. I hope it does strike you as an odd scene because it's very odd. It's even more odd when uh, it gets represented in art. Um, I, uh, I love doing this. I love looking at how artists have tried to render certain scenes in the Bible. Uh, this is one of the more prominent ones. And for whatever reason, this guy decided to have Jesus flying, um, and Moses and Elijah were flying as well. Now, I don't want to knock it too bad. They're, try they're trying to grasp something mysterious. I absolutely respect that. But it's probably not the most realistic scene. The next slide uh, has a one that's probably a little more realistic. 
Again, you have European Jesus talking to European Moses and Elijah. Um, but, they get, you know, it's a children's Bible, so they're just doing their best. Um, but I don't want to knock it too much because uh, this is something that even Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't know how to describe. And people are trying to, to uh, describe this uh, rep or represent it in art. I think this is really interesting when you look at how Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe this scene, not because they describe it differently or that there are uh, discrepancies between how they describe it. Sorry, Mendel, I just scratched my ear and uh, I see Mendel running to the soundboard. I'm so sorry. But what's interesting is not, not that they're saying anything different, but it really reveals they're really struggling to describe what's going on. So let's start with Mark. Mark says he was transfigured before them, which is a real word. I totally thought this is just a word in the Bible. It actually is in the dictionary. It literally means your whole appearance is transformed into something else. I guess this just happened so rarely that I've only ever heard it in church. Um, but that's the word Mark uses. He was utterly transformed. He was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Matthew describes it this way. He also says, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shined like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. So this is even more intense, right? Uh, we were driving yesterday, and thank God the sun has come out here. It's been, uh, it's been a while. Uh, Ambrose, uh, we're driving, and the, Ambrose, the sun was on Ambrose's side of the car. And, you know, she was shielding her eyes from this, and she's saying, no sun, no sun. Um, I said, little girl, you have no idea what you're wishing for. Careful what you wish for here. Uh, we will turn soon enough. But you know, and I know, if you stare at the sun, we know what that experience is like, right? That's the experience Matthew is describing. And Luke is even at, kind of at more of a loss for words. All he can mutter is, the appearance of Jesus' face became different. Uh, it's like, I can't even describe what's going on. It's just different. And his clothes became bright as lightning. So again, we have Jesus who's just utterly like shining bright as light and his, his, uh, his clothes are as white as light. If you go to the next slide, this might give a better vision where you have Jesus just illuminating as light and you see two figures next to them. It's so mysterious, but it did happen historically. So what's just so crazy and why they're just at, an, at a loss for words is on the one hand, they can recognize it's Jesus and they recognize it's Elijah and Moses, uh, which is interesting. Um, but at the same time, they're just shining brightly and they can't even stand to stare at him. So what is going on here? What we're seeing is we're seeing a glimpse of Jesus's glory. We're seeing it physically manifest itself. Right after disciples might be wondering, is this, does this guy know what he's talking about? They see a vision of Jesus in his full glory, the glory he said he was gonna come in. He said, I'm gonna come in the, my own glory, the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And here we see a glimpse of it. We just see a physical glimpse of Jesus's glory. In fact, it's interesting, the text says, uh, Moses and Elijah also appeared in splendor. Uh, next slide. But they're not shining brightly. Jesus is shining brightly. And that's where the, the last image gets it right. You see, you see three men, they're all in glory, but Jesus is just shining. He's just shining and radiating with this light that's indescribable. And that's significant, and we'll come back to it, but there's more. In fact, we don't just get to see 
oh my gosh, Jesus is this glorious divine being. Uh, we'll come back to this. But what are Moses and Elijah even doing here? <clears throat> now, we get a big hint of what Moses and Elijah are doing because Luke tells us what they're talking about. Next slide sa you know, says, uh, they were talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, if you have an NIV or some other translation, it tells you in a little footnote that there's a specific Greek word behind his departure, and that word is exodus. Now, you might be wondering, why would that be important? Why would, why would you know, the Bible app, why would the NIV translators think it's important that I know that? Well, to be clear, it really does mean departure. Um, in fact, uh, if you go to the Athens airport today, this word still means exit or departure. You can see that's the equivalent of an X in Greek, exodos, exit. It still means that today. It really does mean they were talking about his departure, but it really also is the name of the second book of the Pentateuch. And what Luke is doing, especially by saying it so weirdly, his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem, Luke is telling us, if you have ears to hear, what exactly Jesus is up to, what exactly Jesus is doing with his life. In fact, uh, an analogy would be, uh, there was a Weight Watchers commercial during the Super Bowl uh, a few months ago with The Rock and Oprah. I don't know if you've seen this commercial. So they're Weight Watchers. They're running on a treadmill, and The Rock says, hey, Oprah, we're running. She's like, yeah. He says, hey, Oprah, we're mates. She says, yeah. He's like, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Now, the commercial is about Weight Watchers. It's about running on a treadmill and being friends. But if you have ears to hear, and you know that both the Rock and Oprah have talked about maybe running for president one day. In an election year, and they're using the words running mates, when in the United States you have to run with a running mate, two people always run together, you hear the subtext is not just what they're talking about. The, they're talking about running, but the subtext is, hey, trying to tease you with excitement that they might run for political office together. Now, this is just a commercial, it's just for fun, they're not serious, but it provides a little glimpse of what Luke is doing. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are talking about the departure of Jesus at Jerusalem, which in Luke's gospel is not just the death, but Jesus in Jerusalem dies, he is raised on the third day, he ascends to the throne outside of Jerusalem, then the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost on Jerusalem. They're talking about the work Jesus is gonna do, but they're reminding us that we should think of this in terms of Exodus. Why Exodus? Well, if you've read your Old Testament well, you know that Exodus is a really important book because it's God's big act of deliverance of the people of Israel. If you've only watched The Prince of Egypt, it has let you down because it has told you that the climax of this whole thing is them parting the Red Sea, which is really important, but it's not the climax. The central moment is when after they part the Red Sea, Moses leads them to Mount Sinai and he, they camp at the base of the mountain and God's presence descends on the mountain and God's presence descends as a cloud on the mountain. Ooh, anybody getting goosebumps? It descends as a cloud and inside the cloud is what they can only describe as a raging fire. There's some kind of light radiating from the middle of the cloud that represents the presence of God. Moses goes up and he receives the law and he mediates between the people and God. It says, 
That's when God says, I will be your God, you will be my people, we form a covenant. That's what establishes Israel as a country. And Moses comes down the mountain and for 30 days, his face is shining because he's reflecting God's glory, but eventually it stops. That's probably what Moses is doing here with Jesus. Again, we're on a mountain and Jesus is talking about an act of deliverance. The Exodus in Exodus was the great act of deliverance where God rescued his people and he drawed them to themselves. Exodus ends with this long instructions on how to build the tabernacle so that Yahweh can come down and dwell with his people in the tabernacle. That's the point of the whole story. It's not just to rescue them out of Egypt, but it's to come and live with them in relationship. So it's not surprising that that's, that Exodus, kinda, Exodus itself kind of becomes the paradigm when Israel is hoping for God to act they're hoping for God to act like he did at the Exodus because that's kind of their big national moment. In fact, we went through Isaiah last fall. Throughout Isaiah, when people are hoping for Yahweh to return them from exile and come dwell with them, they're using, when Isaiah describes this, he's using a lot of imagery from the Exodus. Not because God's just gonna repeat it, but that's their paradigm. When God is gonna deliver them and God is gonna come dwell with them, uh, God is going to do it in the way like he did it at the Exodus. And this is probably, again, I don't want to get lost in the weeds. This is probably why Elijah was there. Now, I grew up in church being told, uh, I know I'm jumping back to Luke now. I grew up being told Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets. It's very possible, um, but it's interesting that Elijah was chosen, not Isaiah or Jeremiah or someone who actually wrote a prophetic book. Uh, instead, what's actually really interesting to me is Elijah appears in Malachi. I don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but the book of Malachi is basically the message is, hey, remember what God promised to do in Isaiah? He hasn't done it yet. He can't do it now because you guys aren't ready. If God came now, he would destroy everybody because we're sinful and we're not ready for God to come. And so Malachi ends with God saying, I'm going to send Elijah and I'm going to prepare you for my coming. Which is interesting, which is why... In Luke, when John the Baptist is introduced, he's introduced as this Elijah figure, this figure that's going to come. God promises, I'm going to send you to prepare. That's John the Baptist in Luke. And uh, that's why we see, you know, uh, Elijah, the real Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus on a mountain about an exodus. Now, if you're Peter, James, or John, and you're seeing this, you're getting overwhelmingly giddy. No wonder Peter had no idea what to say because this is actually the hope you have. The hope you have is that Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna deliver his people. And you know whatever that looks like, he's gonna fulfill all those promises in Isaiah and all those promises that they were waiting to be fulfilled. All the things they thought the Messiah was gonna do, but they thought had certain expectations of how this was gonna happen. So in reality, what we see is we get to see Jesus really is fulfilling this vocation. He's really fulfilling the destiny of his people. In fact, that's the second thing we see. So we get a glimpse just from Jesus's transformed, Jesus's transformed appearance. We get a glimpse of his glory. But from the fact that he's talking with the guy who did the first Exodus, he's talking with the guy who's supposed to come at the next big moment like the Exodus, and he's talking about a departure using the word Exodus, it's like screaming, hey, this is what I'm doing. I'm gonna fulfill your destiny. And this is what gets me really excited because if I had 
30 more minutes with you guys this morning, I would immediately jump to Revelation because this, you know, I phrase it this way on purpose. In the present tense, Jesus fulfills his people's destiny because Jesus isn't done yet. So Jesus came, we have the, we have the, uh, we have the uh, benefit of hindsight. We can see Jesus did exactly what he said he was going to do. He came, he died, he was raised. He delivered his people. He delivered us from our sins. He departed, he ascended to his throne. He sent us the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see Jesus did exactly what he was gonna do. In Revelation, we get a similar image of Jesus. We're just waiting for him to do what he says he was gonna do. Jesus is described in a very similar way. His, he's just radiating with glory. And at the end, we see God, he, Jesus brings the fullness of God's kingdom to earth. The kingdom comes, we're consummated. God lives with his people. We're with him forever. There's no more death or sin or anything. Everything we're hoping for. So we have confidence, we're lucky, because we see Jesus did this the first time. We have confidence he's gonna do it again. And that's our hope. It's our hope in the midst of anxiety, but it's even our hope in the midst of when we're not anxious, when we're just living our normal lives. What we're hoping for is not just to go to heaven after we die. We're hoping that at the end of history, at the appointed time, Jesus is gonna bring heaven to earth in a full sense. And that's the hope that we cling to. And we get an image here that Jesus is trustworthy to do this because Jesus fulfills his people's destiny. The disciples saw that. They saw he's gonna do exactly what we hoped he would do, even if he's saying he's gonna do it in an odd way. And we have hope that when we read the end of Revelation, we read what Jesus is gonna do, he is gonna do it um, the way that he says he will. Lastly, there's still more, which is crazy. So we see transfigured Jesus in his glory. We see him talking about what he's doing. And then the divine cloud shows up. The divine cloud shows up and a voice from the father says, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. As if we needed any more confirmation, we have God the father just affirming, yes, Jesus is worth listening to. This is my son whom I've chosen for this task. Listen to him. And that's our only real response here. It's also interesting to note Remember in Exodus, the cloud and the fire are together. When God comes to the mountain, the cloud comes down. There's a fire in the midst of it. Here we see Jesus embodying the glory of God on his own. Then the cloud comes, affirms Jesus and leaves, and we're left with Jesus. Just underlying, like as much as they can, the divine nature of Jesus Christ. But he leaves us, God the Father leaves us with this instruction. This is my son whom I have chosen listen to him. So we have every reason to listen to Jesus, not just because we're commanded to by God, uh, although that's good reason enough itself. But I hope you've seen, we just get a glimpse that we really do have every reason to listen to Jesus. He is who he says he is. He fulfills the people's destiny. And God affirms he is the one who has chosen to do this. The band can make their way back down here. But the reason I started with where this occurs in uh, Luke's gospel is this sets us up for this middle section of Luke. God says, listen to my son. And then we have these long 10 chapters of Jesus teaching us how to be disciples. Jesus really knows what he's talking about. Jesus, know, I mean, he's, he is doing what he said he was going to do. And so when Jesus challenges us with things that may strike us as odd, he really is worth listening to. It's important to remember too, that in that world, listening, uh, it 
inherently meant to obey. You don't listen to somebody and decide, eh, maybe. You don't listen to somebody and filter, well, I like this, but I'm not so sure about this. In the ancient world, listening to somebody was inherently seeking to understand so that you could obey. They had other words for saying, for if they wanted to say, consider what he has to say, they had other ways of saying that. So to give you some examples, uh, <coughs> oop, there, oh, I'm missing one. So there is an immediate application of this, right? When uh, Jesus, the first thing he teaches his disciples, you know, this is a message that God says to Peter, James, and John. The first thing Jesus teaches them, and he underlines this, listen very carefully, and he tells them again, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. But in a real way, this is a message not just for Peter, James, and John, but it's a message for all of Luke's readers. So when we start seeing Jesus kind of set a high bar for discipleship, uh, I won't read the text, but uh, in a couple slides, there's a long text. Jesus basically says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to prioritize that above other social obligations, which causes a lot of people to not follow Jesus. Uh, the next slide, when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, which Pastor Alchu preached on uh, a while back, he ends by saying, go and do likewise. Not just a message for the person who heard the parable, it's a message for us. We're supposed to go and do likewise and love in that kind of radical way. And like uh, Jesse highlighted last week, when Jesus says, invest your resources to be rich towards God, that's a message for us too. We're supposed to listen to Jesus. And of course, it's not just kind of the hard things to hear and not the things that make us feel uncomfortable. But when Jesus tells you how valuable you are to God, which uh, not to spoil what Jesse's gonna preach next week, but when Jesus tells you how valuable you are to God, we're supposed to listen to him too. So I wanna close with that. We get a glimpse of Jesus's glory. Jesus fulfills our destiny. We have every reason to listen to him. We have every reason to worship him, which is what we're gonna do now.